following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Rules or laws, they're very important, aren't they? Whether we're talking about house rules that mom and dad set up for doing chores or, you know, how you conduct yourself in room to room and in the hallways of your house or the laws of the land in a country or a state, these things, these decrees by authority set over us, they shape how we function, how we function at home, at work, um, in society, more broadly speaking, in the marketplace and wherever we are taken. And how we understand such rules and laws is in many ways just as important as the laws or rules themselves. Think about this, boys and girls. I don't know if you have this rule in your house. Sometimes I wish we were a bit clearer about it in mine. But maybe mom and dad have said, you must use an inside voice inside. Well, how you understand what inside voice means is very important for how you seek to keep that rule or that guideline at home. Likewise, didn't we just see the understanding of rights and constitutional rights, even in our country, change radically the political landscape in just a day, last Friday, for 49 years? As you know, and as we've been reflecting on, the Supreme Court has considered abortion and abortion access a constitutionally protected right. That is, no state could outlaw it. But then... In the Dobbs decision last Friday, the Supreme Court said, actually, we were wrong about that. Our understanding of constitutional rights, and of abortion in particular, has changed. And in fact, whether or not there's uh, access to abortion in a given jurisdiction or state, that's up to the states to decide. And so now we have, in some ways, two Americas at play. It's very interesting how laws and rules and their interpretation can change in fact, massively change behavior or even national policy, either in our home or in our country. Well, when Jesus began preaching his gospel of the kingdom of heaven, when he came preaching a gospel of glad tidings of salvation by grace through Christ himself and a salvation which is received through faith and and expressed in repentance, when he came declaring these things, some of those who heard him became concerned that he was coming not so much with a new understanding, but with a completely new law, that he was overthrowing the old order, that he was coming as a revolutionary and sparking a revolt, that he was throwing out the law of Moses and replacing it with a new foreign law, either of his own devising or from a faraway land. But Christ came preaching repentance, not unto something new, but unto the everlasting God and His holiness. He came preaching a message of blessedness by God's grace rather than man's effort. But the God hasn't changed. He came extolling the virtues of wisdom and human flourishing with one voice with Moses. But He also spoke of imminent persecution. And these, these pairings of Christ and His teaching, they caused confusion among some, even among the experts of the law in the land, the Pharisees. Those who were known as the holiest of the holy ones of Israel, they were alarmed 
by Christ's teaching. And perhaps by this time, when we get to Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, perhaps they were already accusing him of, of being a Sabbath breaker, of being a libertine, an antinomian, that is somebody who hates God's law. These are all accusations that they lobbed at Jesus Christ in so many words. Well, in our passage this morning, Jesus sets out the main idea of his preaching, not just in the Sermon on the Mount, but in all his life, and particularly in Matthew's Gospel, this is put forward very clearly for us. His teaching and his preaching, namely, that he came not to destroy or abolish or overthrow the law of God, but rather that he came to fulfill the law of God, that Christ came to fulfill it. And so this morning, I will seek to show you that Jesus Christ fulfilled God's unchanging law for our salvation and our instruction in righteousness. That Jesus Christ fulfilled God's unchanging law for our salvation and instruction in righteousness. In fulfilling the law of God as set forth under the terms of the old covenant, and I'll hopefully demonstrate, if not exhaustively, briefly and truly, that Christ did this. He sets us free. He sets us free from slavery to sin in order to serve God from new hearts, upon which the perfect law of God is impressed by the Spirit. Again, Jesus Christ fulfilled God's unchanging law for our salvation and instruction in righteousness. We'll look at this under two headings, and I borrow this largely from uh, John Stott. He broke up the text in a way that I don't think I could do any better. In the first place, the law of Christ in verses 17 and 18, the law of Christ. And then the law for Christians in verses 19 and 20. The law of Christ in 17 and 18, and the law for Christians in 19 and 20. So first... Looking at verses 17 and 18 together, we have the law of Christ. Look at what he says. He opens up his main proposition. He says, do not think. Don't even begin to think. Don't let the thought occur to you that I came to abolish or destroy or overthrow the law or the prophets. Indeed, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill the second half of the verse here gives Christ's active mission. So we're going to consider his mission here in this verse. But the first uh, half gives a very strong correction. And it implies that some have begun to say, who is this one who's abolishing the law and the prophets? When Christ says law or prophets, what he's saying is, I keep the whole Old Testament. I'm not throwing out any part of it. You see, the Sadducees, they threw out the, uh, the prophets, and they retained the Torah all by itself. And the Pharisees, they added all kinds of man-made laws to it, and in some way, as Christ is going to show in his ministry, abolished the authority of God's law. And then there is another sect, the Essenes, who claimed to keep all of it, but really were just legalists and isolationists out on the Dead Sea. But Christ alone comes and says, I have come to fulfill the law. That's his mission. What does it mean to fulfill the law or the prophets? There's several different ways that we need to understand this. First, the word fulfill itself is not merely to affirm something and just repeat it. It's also not, certainly not abrogate or destroy it. In the middle of those two things, just bare repetition 
or contradiction of something, you have affirmation, or you have, um, not, not affirmation, you have fulfillment. And in fulfillment, what Christ is saying is, the law and the prophets as it stands is pointing, directing your attention to something, and I am that something. And so I come in full agreement with the law and the prophets, and I'm doing everything that God has promised. He's ushering in the great vision of Isaiah 62, which we read, and we could have went to any passage of the Old Testament and then tease out how those things all terminate, they point toward, they end in Jesus Christ himself. If I want to illustrate it, imagine, if you will, I have a cup in front of me, and the cup is empty. It's a beautiful cup. It's a very useful cup. But is it serving its purpose if it's empty of any kind of liquid? Of course not. Well, then I take a pitcher and I fill up that cup. It's now fulfilling its purpose for us. Not merely to be looked at and admired and thought about or even examined, but rather to hold something, to have a content, an efficacy, an effectiveness at doing something. It accomplishes something for us. It holds water so the preacher can take a drink when he loses his voice. If I did have a cup of water here, that's what it would be for. And you would all know that. And so Christ is saying, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Well, how does he do this? In his life, Christ was born, as Paul tells us in Galatians, as one under the law. He humbles himself under the law, being born of a human woman, coming into the world, even miraculously through a virgin birth, but yet nonetheless as a man, sharing in our nature, and then keeping every ordinance, every statute, every law of God and commandment perfectly, the perfect man. We could never do that on our own, but he fulfills the law by keeping it. He fulfills the law uh, also by going to the cross, where he absorbs to himself the full wrath of God, taking upon himself the penalty of our sins, and thus making a way of salvation for sinners, even paying their debt and taking their punishment upon himself, he fulfills the moral law and all of its demands, showcasing both the justice and mercy of God on the cross. He fulfills the ceremonial law. In fact, the blood of the circumcision of Christ is just as weighty as the blood of the crucifixion. He um, submits himself to every ceremonial ordinance and law. He never breaks them. And so he fulfills the ceremonial law. Indeed, the Passover, the Old Testament sacraments, the feast days, the sacrificial system, the temple, the tabernacle, all of these things point forward to Christ Jesus and find their ultimate expression in him. They are but shadows of the reality that he is. And the author of Hebrews opens that up for us beautifully. And then, of course, the judicial law of God, Christ comes and he shows what the whole uh, theocratic system of Old Testament Israel, what it was pointing forward to in the government of the church as a spiritual kingdom. And that's what he's announcing in Matthew chapter 4 when he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, Christ fulfills the law in all of these ways. And Matthew makes this point again and again in his gospel, and especially in the first four chapters 
where we hear of Christ fulfilling prophecy after prophecy in his life and his being born in Bethlehem. Why? So that the word of God and the prophets might be fulfilled and fleeing to Egypt and coming up out of there. Why? That the word of God to the prophets might be fulfilled. And even the events surrounding his life, the massacre of young children by King Herod, what does that do? It fulfills prophecy. Christ comes as the fulfillment of prophecy. And he even wields the law of God perfectly in Matthew chapter 4 when he staves off the temptation of the evil one that comes to him in the wilderness. This fulfillment again, it's neither destruction nor bare affirmation or repetition. Rather, Christ comes not as a revolutionary and not as a recording, but as a reformer. He's reestablishing the law's place in the covenant people of God. And particularly, as we see in verse 20, and we'll get there, in the heart. What does Jeremiah say in Jeremiah 31? When Jeremiah is describing the new covenant, the fuller expression of the covenant of grace, which was breaking through in shadows and mysteries in the old covenant, when he's calling forth for the new covenant to come, which is what Christ does, Jeremiah says that the law of God doesn't go away. The law of God is not overthrown or destroyed, but it's impressed on your heart in a renewed humanity. And that's Christ's mission. But what is his reason for the mission? Why does he come with this laser focus on the law of God as the law of Christ? In the strongest terms, he declares this in verse 18. Look what he says. Truly I say to you, amen, I say, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke, literally Yoda or Kariah. Yoda is the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. It could just be like the little dot of your I, uh, of the letter I. And then uh, stroke there is, is not even a full letter. It's just like the little ledge or serif of a letter that sticks out from, from the end of another letter to distinguish two. See, he's saying even the smallest marks of God's uh, written law uh, shall not pass away until all is accomplished or until heaven and earth pass away. They are as permanent as the created order. Brothers and sisters, do you know anything other than the created order? Have you ever existed outside of the created order? Absolutely not. From beginning to end, from cradle to grave, that's what we experience. And in fact, for all eternity, it's not like we become uncreated beings. We remain created in a spiritual realm and then in the new heavens and new earth. And so what Christ is setting forth for his disciples is he's saying, correcting the Pharisees and those who would say he's a revolutionary, he's saying, no, by no means. I believe that the law of God is everlasting, tied to the very character of God, eternal, never-ending. And thus, I come as a minister of the law in this sense, of God's justice and holiness and mercy and goodness and truth. He, again, reestablishes the law's place, but this time seating it in the heart of men. For the moral law of God shall endure even to the end of the created order, arguably beyond it. There is a change 
in certain outward expressions of the law and the ceremonial law. And this is usually where different kinds of Christians then get into big debates about what is retained and what is not retained. But regardless of the changes in outward forms, the meaning even of the ceremonial law, what it points us to, salvation full and free in Christ Jesus, the meaning of this is eternal, shown forth in Christ himself even more fully than in the Old Testament ordinances. Consider that the law of God indeed reflects God's character. And who is God? Children, do you know this from the Westminster Shorter Catechism? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Eternal means forever, without beginning or end. Unchangeable, never changing. Infinite, without the ability for us to comprehend, uh, without even extension, it just he just is in his uh, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, justice, upholding of his holy law, and this law reflects his changeless justice, holiness, and changeless purpose, and beauty and splendor. The divine Christ then comes to us. And in the Sermon on the Mount, perhaps more than anywhere else, we see this fully displayed as true prophet of God, as righteous king over the church and the people of God, and as holy priest of Most High God, instituting ordinances and executing the same. And he cannot in any way deny the law. It's his mission to fulfill it. He is a minister of the law, not unto death, but unto life even as he preaches faith and repentance and the grace of God, Christ upholds the law. As Paul will describe the ministry of Christ's followers in Romans 3.31, when he also goes up against those uh, Judaizers who say that he's breaking the law, Paul, what does he say? He says, by no means. Rather, we establish, we uphold the law. And that's what Christ is doing, especially in our passage today. And so we see in verses 17 and 18 the law of Christ in both his stated mission and in the underlying reason that he gives for his mission. But what of the Christian then? What does this matter to us? What is the role of the law in the Christian life? Verses 19 and 20 give us the law for Christians. Having seen the law of Christ, we now have the law for Christians. Look at verse 19. Jesus shifts here. He says, whoever then annuls or erases one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. At this point in verse 19, Christ addresses his hearers again using the second person. But it's interesting. In verses 17 and 18, he was addressing them in the second person plural. Not really reflected in the New American Standard, but if you have the King James, you you see this. He's addressing them as a group. He says, y'all. But now in verse 19, he's addressing them in the second person singular, not plural. So now he's emphasizing to each of them as individuals what their individual lives are to look like. And what is their life supposed to reflect? Their lives as men, and certainly your lives as men and women and children, are to reflect the law of God, that which I read just a moment ago in the Ten Commandments, down to the least commandment. 
He's not telling them to keep ceremonies. We see Paul expound on that in his epistles. But he's telling them to uphold all the law of God, that which finds its fulfillment in him. And note what he says. He says, whoever annuls even one of the least of these and teaches others to do the same shall be called least. So he's assuming that by your very life, you'll be setting an example and instructing others. That even as he's making disciples, he's making them in order to disciple others. And that as well is shaping the Christian life and has since the very beginning of the church. But really what I want you to notice here in verse 19 is that God is concerned for all his holy decree. He leaves nothing out. You know, in the workplace, you get different directions from your boss. And some of them are very, very important. And others of them are not as important. But does that mean that the other ones are unimportant? No, by no means. If you leave something out that you're told to do as part of your job or as part of your duty, you're liable to be disciplined for that. You'll be docked pay. You'll be docked hours. Perhaps you'll even be fired. No, when you sign up for a job, you're saying... I'm going to do what you tell me to do, and you better be a man of your word, or else you're not going to be very useful in the workplace. Well, how much more is God concerned with his holy decree than even your boss would be concerned with the directions he gives you in the workplace? And what Jesus tells his disciples is that God wants wholehearted devotion, right down to the very core of your being, not just superficial obedience, but he wants your thoughts He wants your affections, the inclinations of your heart. He doesn't even stop at your speech, but goes all the way down to who you are and consider yourself to be. He wants all of it. And so who does he call the great? He calls the great those who keep and teach them. That is even the least of these commandments. Even what he will later call the greater and weightier matters of the law. Not just tithing mint and dill and cumin like the Pharisees, as important as that may be, according to the ceremonial law of the time, but loving your neighbor as yourself, loving God. And later on, he's going to summarize, he said, this is the law and the prophets, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. Those through whom Christ shows his gracious salvation. And the inscribing of the law upon the hearts of men by the Spirit and the bearing forth of fruit as evidences of that spiritual work, those are the great ones in the kingdom. And so, what of you? When we come to the table each and every month, we're told to examine ourselves, to examine ourselves for our interest in Christ, to examine what it is we're thinking, what it is we're saying to one another. Are we speaking words that build up or words that tear down? What it is we're doing. Are we honest in all of our dealings? Are we true and right? Are we seeking to please God and glorify Him? Even as, as Christ taught us even just a, a couple weeks ago when in light of the world, to showcase our good works before the world, not to bring glory to ourselves, but that men might glorify our Father in heaven. Is that driving us in our lives? If we wanted to summarize that, we could say, am I living a great-hearted life? 
a life of one who is called great in the kingdom of heaven. Is that what I'm doing? Well, the Christian's life is, in fact, to reflect God's law in all of its fullness, in all of its glory, in all of its wholeness. And so in verse 20, then, Christ sets forth the great contrast of his ministry, the Christian's righteousness. The Christian's life reflects the law of God. The Christian's righteousness excels that of everyone else. Look at verse 20 for this great test. For I say to you, again in the singular, that your righteousness surpass, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the great test Christ sets before his disciples. By no means, he says, it's emphatic, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven unless your righteousness excels the scribes and perhaps the rest of the Pharisees, if they're uh, one group within another, but certainly the scribes and the Pharisees, the holiest of the holy people of Israel, the most scrupulous law keepers that his hearers would have known. There are a couple of ways of understanding this. Legalists take this one way, and they say, see, Christians need to keep more laws than everybody else. That's not, that's not right. That contradicts everything Jesus has already said in the Beatitudes. Salvation is a work of God's grace. It's a work of the spirit in the heart of men. But then there's a a well-meaning interpretation of this verse that says something true but misunderstands the verse. And that's what was told to me by my college ministry staff person when I was at Temple University. And that is, well, this verse is very easy to understand, Zach. You see, what Christ is saying is that you need his righteousness imputed to you in order to gain access to God the Father. You need to have faith in him and receive his righteousness alone by which men are then saved. And that is true, but that's not what this text is saying. You're getting a good doctrine, but from the wrong text. What this text is speaking of is of inward righteousness that is necessary for kingdom citizenship and living in the kingdom of God, that expresses itself in outward deeds, but is not that righteousness which is imputed to us through faith in Christ and the sufficiency of his death for the payment of our sins. This righteousness is that which the Spirit works in us in order to work out of us, in the world around us. Again, he's not speaking of outward, formal, external obedience like the scribes and the Pharisees. He's not saying, make sure you do more good deeds than the scribes and Pharisees. That's not it. Rather, Christ Jesus is talking of an inward quality of life, which is itself a gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, the ground of our justification, of our being made righteous with God, is in fact Christ's righteousness alone. But Christ's righteousness is never alone in the life of the Christian. And that's what Christ is getting at here. If you trust in Christ, if you've thrown yourself upon God's mercy in him, and I pray that each of you have done that, then always and ever the Spirit will rush in and breathe new life into you. He already has and bear forth the fruits of righteousness and holy living. And that's what Christ is referring to here. 
The glad tidings of salvation, full and free in Christ Jesus, do not lower the standard of holiness to which we should aspire and according to which we should live. Christ is not giving any excuse for moral laxity or looseness, for ignoring the rules of God, the demands of His holiness and His law. Rather, remember what Christ said in Matthew 4 and verse 17. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He calls us to repent from our sins and to live unto godliness in the freedom and liberty he has won for us in his work as mediator and Messiah, as great deliverer and redeemer, as savior and as king. He has won for us liberty, freedom from slavery to sin. What the Israelites referred to as slavery in Egypt, he has set us free from that to live unto God in the beauty and splendor of holiness. He has set us free from death to live unto life. When I was in Philadelphia, I remember a man came up to the door of the church while I was there one day. I think I was there for a men's event. I had gotten the pizza, and this guy walks up, starts talking to me, and we get to talking, and he says, you know, I, I believe that Jesus is God and he's Savior, but I just can't, I just can't stop doing what I want to do. I, I just can't stop. I'm trapped. And I said, my friend, if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior of sinners, if you trust in him, then you're free to live for him. You don't have to sin anymore. There's no compulsion there. You've been set at liberty. Yes, we will wage war against sin. There's an irreconcilable warfare as the Spirit progressively sanctifies us, makes us more and more like Jesus day by day. But we have been set free from the power of sin. That's what Christ is proclaiming. What a glorious message of salvation. Full salvation from beginning to end. And when we put on Christ's righteousness, the Spirit indeed brings forth the fruit of righteous and blessed living. Sinclair Ferguson uses the illustration of a steam engine, locomotive. Uh, the, The power is the Spirit dwelling in you, setting you free from sin. It's like the power of steam being fueled by the fire and the wood or the coal that goes into the engine room. But what good can that train do? Where can it go without tracks upon which to run? And the tracks in the Christian life are indeed the law of God. These evangelical duties that we are given that we have been set free to run this track, to run a race, to fight the good fight of faith. And so, Christ comes not to destroy, annul, overthrow, or cast off the law and the prophets. No, Christ came as a reformer, saying, Ad fontes, back to the source. Go back to the true meaning of the law. He comes as a revelator. He's revealing the fullness of God's goodness and demands and purposes among men. So in that sense, there's something new in Christ's ministry, yes. But it's in radical continuity with what had come before through Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Elijah and the rest. Christ comes not as a revolutionary, but as a law-loving reformer, one who delights in the law of God, not as a legalist, not as an antinomian, 
but as the perfect man, as the one renewing humanity and setting up a new order of disciples to disciple others. He came to fulfill the law of God as his own law, as the law of Christ, that God's people would live out the law for Christians from the heart upon which the law is written by the Spirit, impressed upon us through preaching and sacrament and, and all the ordinances of God in his church. Jesus Christ, I hope I've made this clear, has fulfilled and kept perfectly God's unchanging law. Why? For our salvation, for those who trust in him, who name him as Savior and Lord, and for our instruction in righteousness, those who call him master, those who call themselves disciples of his. So how does this now shape your faith and practice? Do you delight from the heart in God's holiness, in his righteousness, and in his law? If you read the commands of God and you're terrified and guilt-stricken and laid low in the dust with no reprieve, then like Martin Luther the monk, you have misunderstood the purpose of God's law. But if you read God's law and you see in it the beauty of Christ your Savior, and you rejoice that he has fulfilled all of it, and then you follow his direction and you go back to it to shape your own life, to order your own life in his power and not in your own strength, then like Martin Luther, the reformer, you've understood now the, the usefulness of the law for the Christian life and for Christian discipleship. Is the law a burden to you, or is it indeed a delight to you? Does it represent to you shackles and slavery? Or rather, does it showcase for you and, and signify to you liberty and freedom found in Christ Jesus? Oh, my friends, I hope that you delight in it, that you make it your delight today and every day, that when you read the law of God, when you read his commands, when you meditate on his words and his statutes, you with the psalmist can say that you delight in them that you rejoice in them, for Christ has fulfilled them for you. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.